Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this event, Does Devolution Require a Reformed UK Constitution? I'm Jess Sargent, Associate Director here at the Institute for Government. Um, and this event forms part of a major review of the UK Constitution that the IFG is undertaking in collaboration with the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge, um, which aims to assess the functioning of the UK Constitution and make robust recommendations for reform. And one of the areas that we'll be looking at is the UK's territorial constitution, um, which has become recently under strain. The relationship between the UK and devolved governments has hit new lows during the Brexit process and were further tested during the coronavirus pandemic. Some of the norms and conventions that have historically governed the relationships between different institutions have been bent or broken over the past five years. And each part of the UK is facing its own unique constitutional challenges, including how to devolve more power within England. Our review team has been across the country holding roundtables with experts, practitioners in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England and asking the question, how well is the UK constitution working for each part of the UK and is reform needed? So joining me now to answer these very questions, I have an excellent panel from across the UK. Joining us from Cardiff, we have Professor Joe Hunt, Professor of Law in the Cardiff School of Law and Politics and a member of the Wales Governance Centre. Joining us in the room, we have Professor Nicola McEwen, Professor of Public Policy at the University of Glasgow, where she's establishing a new centre for public policy and Fellow at the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Joining us from Newcastle, we have Professor Andy Pike, Chair of the Regional Development Studies at the Centre for Urban and Regional Development Studies at Newcastle University. And joining us from Belfast, Sir David Sterling, former head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service and Chair of the Chief Executives Forum. And we're very grateful to all these respective organisations and the Mitchell Institute at Queen's University Belfast for hosting us um, when we held our roundtables in different parts of the UK. Um, before we kick off, a couple of brief arrangements. For those watching online, you can send your questions via Slido. There should be a link alongside the live stream. Um, if you give your name and where you're viewing from, that's always very much appreciated. And we do have a small audience here in the room. Thank you very much for coming. Um, we'll get to questions from the audience later, um, but if you want to ask a question, please just put your hand up. We'll be live tweeting from at IFG events using the hashtag IFBennettInstitute, so do tweet and follow along. Um, so one of the things that really struck us when putting together our roundtables was that there are both differences, common themes and interdependencies between the constitutional conversations in different parts of the UK. Um, and devolution is often used as a catch-all term, but actually there are different understandings of devolution in different parts of the UK and different challenges that are being faced. Um, so I want to start with you, Nicola. Can you talk to us a bit about the debate in Scotland? It's obviously dominated by the question of independence, but underlying that, how much of this do you think is driven by frustration about the way that the UK constitution currently operates? Um, I mean, I, th I think... Primarily, the debate within Scotland has drivers that are internal. Uh, I think that's probably the case in each of the constituent territories. Um, but um, I think if we go back a bit to pre-independence, looking at the longer history of the Home Rule movement, then certainly um, that was a lot to do with frustration at the way that the UK was governed and Scotland's place within it. And I think we have seen more of that um, since Brexit. So. 2014 independence referendum, not really linked to feelings about how the UK was governed or Scotland's place within it, broad satisfaction in fact uh, with devolution at that time. Uh, but since Brexit, I think that's been critical. Both the decision itself, um, which obviously you know, took place against the backdrop of a strong majority for Remain within Scotland, but also the experience and the marginalisation of the devolved institutions, devolved governments in that process. Mm, fantastic. Um, and I mean, Joe, there are similar those frustrations around uh, the Brexit process specifically that, that Nicola mentioned in Wales, but a slightly different conversation about the answer to that and what that might be. Can you tell us a bit about um, where the constitutional debate is in Wales? Obviously, the Welsh government's recently set up the uh, constitutional commission there. Um, yeah, just tell us about what the constitution yeah. looks like from Cardiff. Thanks, Jess. And I think I'll focus a, a little in particular on the, uh, the legal constitutional context, given my particular background. I think, you know, those um, frustrations are very much being felt 
particularly here in, in Wales. Um, I think there's a real sense of vulnerability about the, the legal settlement. Um, Wales has been, you know, this experience of devolution, of legislative devolution that began in the late 1990s, uh, Wales's settlement, so to speak, has been in a state of sort of constant evolution through that period. Uh, unlike Scotland, Wales did not get, the Welsh uh, Parliament did not get uh, primary legislative powers. There wasn't a parliament, there was an assembly at the start um, and there was an assembly government. And so we've had that, that sort of process of Wales um, gaining primary legislative powers throughout this period, 2017, moving from a conferred model to a reserve model like Scotland's. This was supposed to be a, you know, a, a lasting settlement. And, you know, what we really feel is that sense that that settlement has been undermined um, really significantly. Uh, the extent to which there is a space for autonomy that has been eaten into by various sort of moves from the centre, any sort of effective co-working, working together for the UK, that's been under significant challenge. So a real sense of, of sort of a vulnerability and the complexities that that brings as well for doing effective um, in terms of what can be done within a settlement that is constant, it feels like it's constantly uh, sort of um, constantly changing and the difficulties of navigating throughout that. And as you say, we've got um, a constitutional uh, commission, the independent commission that's been set up by the Welsh government that was set up 2001. We've had an interim report um, where it's considering, and its job is not necessarily to put forward you know, a blueprint of where to go, but to reflect on what that debate is. And, and here in Wales, um, I think sort of the federal model is coming through quite strongly. I think it's it's gaining ground. It's one of three models that the um, the commission is looking at. One is status quo. Um, well, no, they, no, they reject status quo saying it's unviable, but what they say, can we strengthen within what we've got, within models of parliamentary sovereignty? And there's a recognition that that's not really going to do the job. We need to go further, something more like a federal model. Independence is also one of those things that's being considered, but we're in a completely different place from Scotland for that. Thank you. So independence is a big feature of the debate in Scotland. Um, in Wales, as you say, federalism is, is gaining prominence. But in, in Northern Ireland, there's a very different um, constitutional debate about uh, the survival of the institutions more generally. Uh, David, obviously devolution happened in the context of the Good Friday Agreement. But with this in mind, what do you think are the key challenges for the UK constitution and how it relates to Northern Ireland? Oh, no. Sorry, I think we don't have sound. Thank you. Apologies. Uh, <laughs> didn't want to be the person who forgot it to unmute. But there you go. Look, yes, there are some issues which are clearly very unique to Northern Ireland, but there are some issues which um, you know we would share common cause with our colleagues in uh, Cardiff and Edinburgh on. Uh, Northern Ireland obviously is unique in that our devolved arrangements must be consistent with the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, which was agreed 25 years ago. And that sort of international treaty and the two referendums which followed um, has accommodated conflicting aspirations, identities, and it's given Northern Ireland legitimacy, which it didn't have before. However, it hasn't really given us good government. We've currently been without government for 16 months. And actually, we find that in eight years of the last 25 years, we, we have not had uh, the institutions um, functioning properly. And in that sort of gap. The Secretary of State, for example, has uh, had to prepare a budget for Northern Ireland on five occasions since 2017. We've also got the fundamentally undemocratic position now where uh, the nine Northern Ireland departments are having to manage a very major budget shortfall of around a billion pounds, and they're having to cut services to live within their budgets, which you know, is totally an appropriate thing for civil servants to be having to do. In the past, the UK government would have stepped in with direct rule, but uh, that's now obviously politically unacceptable. Uh, and what we're actually seeing now is a form of indirect rule where the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is intervening in some issues, but not in others. Like just last week, he legislated for uh, 
the introduction of uh, religious and sex education in school, you know, but he is not taking big decisions on budget allocations elsewhere. So it's, it's, it's an unusual position. So as I say, we've got some issues which are very unique to Northern Ireland, but there are points of commonality as well. And certainly we see that devolution does, I think, lack strong constitutional protections. We do seem to be subject to the whims of the government of the day. And um, we've noted, you know, what, what has happened in Scotland. Uh, and, you know, I was struck by a comment which Kieran Martin has made, which, um, you know, he, he suggests that we've moved from a position where the union was based on consent to one where it's based very much on the force of law, which is a source of concern for us all. I think there's a sense quite often that um, Northern Ireland issues are often subservient to the interests of the party in power. And, you know, don't go into won't go into detail now, but certainly in the way in which the protocol was developed and then the uh, UK government sort of sought to disown um, when it suited, the, you know, the interests of the government at the time uh, was a matter of particular concern. Uh, again, we found in the past that good devolution has tended to be reliant on the personalities of the ministers in place rather than on uh, conventions and procedures. Uh, we see a lack of understanding in Northern Ireland issues in Whitehall. I don't think that's unique to Northern Ireland. And that, I think, is affected as well by the churn we would see in, you know, amongst staff um, in Whitehall departments. And on occasion, a lack of willingness by UK ministers to engage with local ministers. And it's understandable. Sometimes you can develop a good, very good policy for England um, and uh, find that there are unique issues in uh the DAs, which actually make the policy uh, a little less difficult. So um, those are reasons, sorry, th th those are the very issue, various issues that we'd be addressing here. And I just want to mention one in passing as well, and that is Barnet. Um, but Barnet um, has been in place since 1979. It was introduced as a short-term measure, but it's quite clear that uh, there are levels of dissatisfaction with that. Uh, and whilst it's maybe not a primary constitutional issue, it is definitely a source of friction for us. Thank you. Um, thanks very much, David, for that um, excellent summary. Um, so, Andy, I think English devolution is often conceived as less kind of big C constitutional as it might be considered um, when we talk about devolution to Scotland, Wales um, and Northern Ireland. There's slightly different drivers, but it's a very live issue and one where both the current UK government and potentially a, a, a future Labour government might also have a, a big agenda on. So how do you see England's place within this broader constitutional debate? Yeah, I mean, historically, it's always been problematic given its relative size, of course, in terms of economy, population and also the governance centralisation within London as the seat of UK uh, government. So it's always been difficult, I think, in terms of trying to work out uh, an appropriate kind of governance structure for England itself. I think one of the things we've seen historically is the kind of pendulum swings, I think, as the national government has attempted to produce stable enduring kind of intermediate institutions uh, between that national government level and local government. And, you know, from the post-war period, we've had regional structures, we've had local, we've gone back to regional, we've gone back to local, we're maybe now seeing some sub-regional uh, institutions emerging. And they've kind of embedded a, a, a ongoing churn and fragmentation, really, to the governance of England, which has been uh, problematic. So within a highly centralised system, uh, local government, in effect, has remained a creature of parliament, subject to change um, and, and shift and, and transition, really, over the, that extended period. So we currently have a, a very geographically differentiated patchwork, very fragmented patchwork of governance arrangements with different powers and resources across England. Uh, but we do have the perhaps unusual situation where both uh, major parties, the government uh, as well, have at least... I think given a weight to the idea that some form of devolution, and we can perhaps discuss whether we are actually seeing any devolution in um, in England or whether it's a weaker form of devolution, maybe we'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are certainly recognising that the, the shortfalls, if you like, of the project of national renewal, however described by the parties then, is going to need some kind of decentralisation of an overly centralised state. And I think there's some consensus around that uh, and a degree of overlap in terms of projects of levelling up or wider constitutional reform that have really made England and this problematic issue of how do you govern England then uh, uh, part and parcel of this wider debate. Thank you. 
Um, fantastic. So, I mean, I think what we really got a sense of there is uh, the, the, there are lots of differences uh, in the debate around devolution, but also lots of similarities, some of which I think David articulated very well there. I think there's challenges between coordination, between central and devolved governments, policy coordination, questions about funding, those sorts of issues. Um, Joe, I think one of the things that is often said is that in order to improve devolution, uh, part of that depends on improving relationships between uh, the ministers in different uh, parts of the UK, potentially making different policy choices over Brexit and the UK Internal Market Act and decisions around the shared prosperity funds. You know, those policies have arguably kind of created tension within the devolved settlements. To what extent do you think that those challenges um, could be addressed by perhaps a, a different government that pursued different policies? Or do you think there's something more fundamental about how the UK constitution operates that means that there is a case for more major reform? And I think we, we've already heard from Nicola about Scotland's position, the Scottish government, you know, the and the Welsh government is in the same space there in terms of having opposed Brexit and now being fundamentally opposed to the way in which it has been done. And now looking at as the UK government sort of replaces itself in the, the place that the European Commission and the other EU institutions held before, what we're seeing is, you know, the governance structures that that were framing devolution that came from the European Union. So a commitment to subsidiarity, to this sort of cooperative approach to, to legislative uh, regulation and space for divergence and diversity that was reflected in a lot of instruments, that we're seeing that being moved out and a sort of recentralization taking place. So what you know that process of coming out, that process of what goes in its space, um, as we say, there's sort of profound challenges there about differences in opinion coming from the different governments. But in terms of what did we have in place that could make that work? Could we have made this work? Could we have had, um, you know, could we have used the structures that we had in a more positive way? Could they have been done in that way? I mean, the one thing that we can't, you know, we, we keep on coming back to is the ability of London to be able to fall back on parliamentary sovereignty and the power that that, that has over devolution. And that is the sort of thing we know now because we had that confirmation from the Supreme Court that, you know, it is simply a political convention. It doesn't have any legal force. So there's that, that sort of trump card mm. that is held there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we are looking to build in systems that you know, whether that's participation in international relations, um, making the, the UK internal market work, that all of these are being done at a time where there is intense political tension. Um, and we just know that those institutions and the arrangements that we had just aren't fit, fit for managing that through. Yeah, really interesting. I wanted to get your view on this, Nicola. Yeah. I mean, uh, Joe mentioned there the perpetual challenge of parliamentary sovereignty always gives, you know, a UK government with a majority the opportunity to alter the devolution settlement or to pass legislation that might be contrary to what's previously agreed. Are there things that can be done within the current system to provide more protection for devolution? Or do you think that that's not possible without moving to something like a, a single written document or some form of higher law? So I think there are things that can be done, both procedurally and in a less formal way. I mean, I think whatever you do with the Constitution, you mentioned relationships. I think relationships are absolutely key. Um, and, there's, and it's very difficult to sort of um, identify that in a formal sense. But you see it in international relations as well. You know, so much of the important work takes place on the sidelines of formal meetings. Um, and I, I think we cannot underestimate the importance of that, whatever the constitutional relationship between uh, the con constituent territories of, of these islands. Um, but I think I absolutely agree with Joe. Um, the, the Sewell Convention um, was a really important principle that underpinned devolution, was essentially the compromise between parliamentary sovereignty mm -hmm. and self-government uh, for the constituent territories. And there's, it, it's not gone altogether, but it has 
confidence in the Seoul Convention has been eroded um, because we now know that when the political will is there to set aside the, the opinion of the devolved institutions, that will happen. Um, and once it was done once, it became easier um, to do it again. Um, I mean, you, I suppose procedurally you can do, you can have agreement about certain things to do if, with, if consent is withheld, what then is required? You can, you can put a, a set of things in place, and you, you and your colleagues have suggested some, <laughs> some, some th practices that could be put in place um, to sort of try to at least um, have due reflection on the decision that the parliament is taking. That's not going to help, I don't think, um, stabilise the situation. Um, I suppose my worry about whether you sort of try to codify everything right now is that there are very different um, perceptions in the different parts of the UK about what devolution means, its mm -hmm. scope, mm -hmm. what the, 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 the limits of devolved powers ought to be. And I, I suppose I would rather fear that it would be formalized in ways that were going to add to the problem rather than, mm -hmm. rather than resolve it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, David, um, you mentioned earlier um, some of your concerns about the UK government's approach to Northern Ireland during Brexit and some of the negotiation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We've talked a bit about sort of how parliamentary procedures could alter the way that devolution operates. Are there things that you think the UK government could do differently in future to prevent similar problems later down the line? Yeah, I think a lot of that would be just good practice. Uh, and I think that, you know, I made the point earlier that sometimes we would have had a perception that, you know, our our issues weren't properly understood. Um, so I think there's nothing to beat engagement, the fostering of good relationships. Uh, I think there was probably a sense in, you know, after 1998, that Northern Ireland was sorted and that, um, you know, the attention of UK ministers could go elsewhere. And I think one of the lessons that we've learned, uh, given the difficulties we've faced in the intervening 25 years, is that UK government ministers do need to continue to show an interest in Northern Ireland. Uh, and indeed, there's a role for the Irish government there to continue just to make sure that the uh, the, the agreement is, is working as well as it should. Um, yeah, there's probably um, a responsibility on us in Northern Ireland as well, because I think there was a sense as well that after 98 that, um, uh, you know, we had got more freedom to do things ourselves, but we probably saw a weakening of the traditional links that we had with UK departments uh, and that we maybe didn't use them sufficiently, that we didn't and ourselves um, build those relationships. Um, you know, it, it takes as much effort to develop policy for 1.9 million people as it does for 55 million people. And I think that was one of the things that maybe we, we neglected a little. So I think a lot of it is just basics around forming good relationships. Um, structurally, um, I, I'm not so sure that I can think of anything that would make a fundamental difference that would actually stick. Um, although I, I, you know, I was quite taken by Philip Rycroft's idea of a sort of new constitutional body, which you maybe want to sort of float at one stage, at some stage anyway, uh, as, as a mechanism for maybe addressing some of these constitutional issues in the absence of anything similar. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. And thank you for the, the plug uh, for one of our papers for the review of the UK Constitution uh, by Philip Rycroft. Um, you can find that on our website. Um, I just want to pick up on some of that uh, with, with you, Nicola, about this question about relationships between uh, the different civil services yeah. um, and that post-evolution there has been, as people would call it, a tendency to sort of devolve and forget. And now post-Brexit, perhaps a need to coordinate more. But at the same time, there might not necessarily be the political incentives there for uh, different governments to to coordinate. Do you think there's anything structural that could that could help in that aspect? Yeah. So <clears throat> the devolve and forget idea is one that's applied across the the devolved territories, and I think that came from the idea that there was a relatively clear 
distinction between what was reserved to the UK Parliament and what was then, by definition, devolved. And of course, that was different in the different mm -hmm. territories, but um, relatively clean. Of course, it was never completely clear and separate and distinctive anyway. There was always interdependence, but there has become much more interdependence. In the Scottish case, partly because of the most recent devolution settlement, 2016, that made things a lot more complex, um, but also because of Brexit, because of the, the removal of that sort of EU architecture, the regulatory umbrella that all of the governments operated within, um, and the arrangements that the UK government have put in place. So yes, on the one hand, there is a need for officials and ministers uh, to engage more, um, ideally at an earlier point in the process so that you can genuinely get cooperative approaches. And maybe we'll talk about a deposit return scheme example in, in, in a bit, but you, but you can think of it. The problem is that's not happening. It's not happening early enough and it's not happening in a way that is genuinely co-produced. Um, we have moved on from devolve and forget, but we've moved on to something like devolve and supervise, <laughs> which is not part of the ethos of uh, self-government, uh, which is the way to best conceive of devolution in, in, the, in the Scottish and Welsh case, certainly. Mm, fascinating. And I mean, Andy, um, these are problems that are likely to arise uh, more so in an English context as kind of powers and responsibilities are devolved um, to uh, combined authorities or other kind of local levels. Do you think there's anything that um, we can learn from the experience of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland for devolution in England? Are there any problems we should be uh, thinking about in advance uh, where we might be able to, to learn some lessons there? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key things is the this kind of ad hoc incremental way in which the highly centralised governance structure in England has been kind of uh, decentralised. I mean, devolution is the term that's often used, but when you compare it to the settlements that are in place in the other devolved administrations, you know, it's a pale shadow, really, in, in many ways, even in those kind of uh, trailblazer uh, areas such as Greater Manchester and and uh, West Midlands, and now you know potentially in the northeast with its uh, new settlement. So, I think we always have to reflect and think about the extent to which you've still got this extremely highly centralised system in England, and any shift and change around that has been relatively modest and piecemeal, really, um, uh, as part of it. And you know, the, the big models we always look to are, are, are if you had a written constitution, uh, you would have um, certainly there's models in other European countries where there's a kind of local self-government protection, you know, that's written into the constitution and gives a degree of autonomy and kind of defines the basic powers and resources that local government would have. Now, we have nothing, nothing like that at all in, uh, in the UK setting. And, you know, that's really at the, at, at the fundamental um, sort of heart of the problem, really, that local government's a creature of parliament subject to UK government changes, you know, and the deferral of such change as well, you know, in terms of sorting out its funding system, which many acknowledge is dysfunctional and broken, but, you know, there's very little uh, political capital to be gained in sorting out council tax, for example, you know, across England. So there's these sorts of issues. In terms of the learning, I, I think, you know, again, the situations as um, as uh, colleagues have, have mentioned here are, are, are very different, but um, certainly, they're at different stages of development, probably not enough dialogue between uh, those in England leading local government and those in the devolved administrations. But certainly I think one of the lessons is time. You know, this has been in place for a long time in a mature state like the UK. Uh, shifts don't happen uh, very quickly. So trying to give time for the institutions and the leaders and the civil services to bed down and stuff, I think, is really uh, uh, quite a, a telling lesson. You know, the trailblazers of Greater Manchester will always tell you the story of cooperation started in the late 80s, you know, and sort of worked its way through really to see them at the, the pinnacle of devolution, uh, decentralisation in England. I think the other couple of things you'd say are the degree, although quite rightly we've uh, uh, heard some points about um, destabilisation things, but I think in relative terms that institutional stability, potential to evolve and learn, you know, we've been marked by constant churn and fragmentation in England, you know, from regional to local structures. Everything gets torn up, thrown up in the air and the pieces land. You know, we're in a little bit of a, a situation like that at the minute. 
And I think as well, there's been a degree more sort of evaluation and monitoring really of how devolved government actually works, really, because I think we lack that in England at the moment, uh, where we've got these new structures, mayoral combined authorities, combined authorities. But the question of whether they work or not, mm. they're quite limited in terms of the answers we can generate for that at the moment. Mm. Really interesting. Um, and Nicola, how, how do you think English devolution or more English devolution might affect uh, the relationship between the UK government and the devolved government? You know, one of the things we often hear is that one of the challenges of intergovernmental relations is that the UK government has this dual role as both the government as the whole of the UK and the government in England. Do you think this agenda will have any bearing on how they, how the UK government might perceive itself or, you know, even who might need to be in the room for those various conversations? Um, I, th I think it depends on how it evolves. Um, a limited bearing, um, I think, is, is my response to that, and possibly one that um, doesn't necessarily help the situation. I think, you know, there's clearly an, an issue for, for many people about how England is governed, and there's no easy answer to that um, and, and different views of it. Um, if we were to move towards a system that um, saw English regions um, identified, uh, sort of developed in ways that were similar to... I mean, I, get, I find it yeah. difficult to imagine that we've moved towards a system that was symmetrical in that sense. Um, the demand for it isn't really there. Um, if you did do that, I think one of the tensions that we would find is where you, your multi-level governance structures don't map on to your multinational ones. Um, and for Scotland and Wales, obviously nationhood in Northern Ireland is contested, but um, the, the idea of being a nation within the United Kingdom is significant politically, mm -hmm. um, population-wise, obviously the relatively small parts of the UK, and that's reflected in the House of Commons where the representation is relatively small compared to the representation from England. Um, but if you were to build structures to try to um, recognise the diversity, you need to bear that multinational character in mind and um, reflect it in the institutions if they are to be helpful, in a sense, to, to nurture consent uh, for the United Kingdom and for certainly Scotland's place within it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, on that, um, we've got a couple of questions online about some of the uh, recent proposals by Gordon Brown's Constitutional Commission, which does propose um, an assembly of, of nations and regions, but perhaps lacks detail exactly how it would answer that question. Would there be sort of special representation for the nations? Would it be kind of by population? If you think, how do you think that chamber could be designed in a way that might best uh, address some of these problems that we've been discussing? So um, it's really interesting that the, the Commission's report left out, you know, left aside some of the difficult issues around um, a, a Chamber of Nations and Regions because they're really, really difficult. Um, <laughs> and, and there would be an awful lot of work to do um, to think about how you do that. If you create... Um, an assembly that is elected, which there would clearly be a drive to do that, then rather than being um, a, a help, in a sense, to something that strengthens uh, devolution, it could undermine it. Mm -hmm. um, because then you centralise your territorial representation and there is nothing in the report that I could see that suggests there would be a link between the people who were there and the devolved institutions themselves. Um, so that kind of model, the German model, isn't really something that you can, can make happen very easily in the UK, certainly unless England has a system of, of devolution uh, throughout. Um, but an alternative model, um, I find it difficult to see how you don't then get caught up in the, the, the party politics that dominates Westminster already. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, it, it could be something that uh, undermines rather than, than protects devolution. Mm. And Andy, I'd be interested in your views from a sort of English regional perspective. Could this help uh, give a voice to kind of regions that don't have devolution deals or could it undermine the existing progress that's been made in establishing these institutions outside of Westminster? Yeah, I mean, as Nicola's hinting at, any any kind of UK uh, 
federalization or federalism, I think, is, is going to be very difficult to do from the starting point that we're at and trying to learn, I guess, from the different sorts of federal structures in other countries is, is maybe a starting point to think how think through how that might work. And of course, the this patchwork um, map of governance and high centralization in England really, really doesn't help that at all. Um, because what would you do? You'd only um, sort of bring in the mayors from the mayoral combined authorities. I mean, that would only be a, a, a relative, you know, I forget what the ni- precise number would be, but that would be only a proportion, if you like, of representation of population then from um, those subnational units then within uh, England. I mean, both parties, I mean, levelling up white paper plus the Labour proposals are all about trying to fill in the map, if you like. So to try and get uh, appropriate devolved um or at least decentralised combined authority structures, or I think they're talking as well about county-type arrangements too, or mayors even in unitaries, um, like in Cornwall, for example. But you're a long way away from that map being filled in and then having a population from them, which you might draw up then the political representatives that do have that sort of domestic link or local link, if you like, as a, a sort of means of representation. So the, the the patchwork messiness ad hoc nature of it in England again frustrates the um, uh, the overall um, uh, kind of uh, journey or path towards a, a resolution. I think I think my biggest worry. I mean, yeah, it's been mooted uh, on many an occasion a kind of assembly of um, uh, of nations and regions, but I I just think it's such a big, politically difficult institutional reform centered in London, as Nicola has mentioned, and. Is it really going to be a priority for if there's an incoming Labour government in a difficult financial situation with public service provision uh, pressures? I just, you know, while while we can make a strong case as academics for the importance of decentralisation as part of national renewal and, and addressing some of these thorny challenges that we face, low productivity and uh, balancing the books and so forth, um, I just see that those will get sidelined uh, would be my worry in terms of uh, uh, the priorities of uh, uh, any new government. Mm. Well, of course, we don't um, currently have a Labour government in uh, Westminster, but we do in in Wales. Um, So uh, there's a question online uh, for you, Joe, um, about how the um, current uh, proposals from the UK Labour Party and the Gordon Brown Review um, would work with the things that the Welsh government are um, currently considering and uh, taking some of Andy's points about potentially the political feasibility or the challenges of implementing something as major as Lords Reform, are there other things that you think um, an incoming government could borrow from the Welsh government's work that would help address some of these problems? Yeah, thanks for that, Jess. I think... um Reflecting on that idea of sort of devolved and forget, um, you know, in some ways the proposals that we're hearing about, you know, having representation at, at the centre and sort of centralising that territorial representation, but taking it away from the devolved governments, you know, isn't properly building in shared governance. Um, and so what we've got coming from the Brown Commission is an approach that you know, is some way short of uh, effective shared governance across the UK uh, for the different governments working together. And I think, of course, the Welsh government position comes from a different starting point. And uh, its proposals are more around ways that those governments could work together effectively. And also how the parliaments could work together. And that's something that's, um, you know, ripe for development. Um, So, and in some ways, we've we've got some of that with the common frameworks approach. And if that had the opportunity to to do its work and to to bed in, and that's you know another approach, a different approach for managing um, the UK internal market, for managing shared resources, that recognises that the governments should have a space to work together. Um, And that's a space that the UK Internal Market Act sort of swung into. Uh, So I think, you know, you've got different proposals coming from a different starting point that recognises more how the the governments and the parliaments should work together. There's a a policy document uh, reforming the union that has, from the Welsh government, that proposes more of these these ideas that, that link together the governments more. Great, fantastic. 
I'm going to take some questions from our in-person audience. Now I'm going to take them in twos or threes. We have a roaming microphone, so if you could just put your hand up and wait for the microphone uh, to come to you. If you could also say who you are um, and what organisation you're from at the start, that would be great. Uh, so we've got one question there, um, one at the front here. And anyone else want to go in the first? Great, excellent, we'll go here after that. You're very sweet, Jess. I just want to pick up Andy's point. My name's Andrew, Andrew Edwards. I'm a student. I mean, I've travelled from Derry via Stranra, someone to make the Scottish connection to Dover. And I, David, I've met, never met yet a local authority that isn't whinging, moaning, groaning and complaining about its finances, you know, since the collapse of the Ulster Council Agreement in 1974. No one ever says they've got enough money. You know, you've got good in Northern Ireland, you've got good Titanic or anything like that. Isn't it just that it is too big an issue? As Andy rightly says, the next incoming Labour government or Lib Labour government or Scottish supported Labour government is going to be far too busy with the cost of living crisis or far too busy trying to get a confidence and arrangement situation than to carry on with your, as good as it is, project. You could just pass the microphone back. Great, thank you. Uh, hi, uh, it's uh, Richard. Uh, I'm uh, from the Embassy of Japan, um, of which uh, Japan, uh, unlike the UK, is a very uh, homogenous country with just really one nation. Um, sort of two questions, if there's time. Um, but one is, would perhaps making a civil convention mandatory that's enshrined by judicial uh, backup um, would that help to create a healthier, more democratic union uh, instead of seeing this more sort of tit-for-tat between different governments over, say, the deposit return scheme? Um, perhaps more towards a supranational model that we see with the European Court of Justice uh, and the subsidiarity principle. Uh, and the second one, more on Northern Ireland, uh, is perhaps when we talk about uh, the moving away from what the UK government could do and perhaps more within Northern Ireland, um, perhaps is the cross-community power-sharing uh, model arrangement within the executive and legislative, not for, say, the PSNI, uh, do, would, do you believe that that perhaps further enshrines secretarian divides uh, to the point of ineffective governance uh, that we see with DUP boycotting? Um, essentially, does it create more problems than it solves? Uh, thank you. <coughs> Hello, I'm Belinda Hill. Um, I have a company, Visible Arts Limited, which is currently in limbo. Um, I started out uh, online in around 2004 with my company, getting a lot of hits internationally because uh, I have track record in animation and a lot of those productions in the 80s and the latest previous recession were done um, across uh, the globe. Uh, that film was made in America and here. So for me, the issues are what actually constitutes local, especially in the labour market. Um, with current conditions, people looking for work, I'm being targeted for security work, as well as online work with American companies. Um, how do you define your locality under those circumstances? It's just becoming more and more complicated. So that will necessarily have an impact on devolution, which is why I was a Remainer, because legislation, as it stood, was complicated enough as was. And with devolution, it just seems we're fighting the very binds that we put in place to try and consolidate and manage in a local, uh, sorry, a global market a bit locally. And those tensions just don't seem to be reducing. They get worse and worse and worse. And for me, I went back and retrained because of the problems I had online. I was targeted with malware attacks and um, also local theft. Um, an online gang, uh, some are in jail now for murder, targeted my business for identity theft. So it has been a very torrid situation. And in light of the Thank you. things that are going on, I have concerns on that level. Great, thanks. Um, excellent, so lots of questions uh, to get our teeth into there. Um, so the first question I'm going to put to you, Andy, about sort of this question, is the problem actually not enough money? Um, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts about, um, you know, some of the arguments for devolution have been put in, in England, have been put in terms of economic development. Do those sort of ring true to you? Can you do both, essentially? <laughs> 
Yeah, Andrew raises some uh, very important points. And I think one of the big issues, of course, is this balance of funding between what national government and what local government spends in England, as well as the overall envelope of how much resource is actually in there. So I think these are these are key issues, really, that um, have to be kind of addressed and just constantly the can gets kicked down the road of uh, multi-year settlements, reforming the two basic property taxes that uh, local government relies upon, the extent to which local governments are encouraged to get involved in generating new sources of revenue and income. So that that is a big uh, thorny issue. I think one of the fundamental things, of course, is to really go back to the the purpose of uh, devolution. You know, why is it that we want to uh, decentralise these governance structures? Well, the classic arguments are that you can allocate your resources uh, better, more efficiently, more effectively. You can tap local knowledge. You can bring government closer to the people. You can have a expression of subsidiarity where the appropriate powers and resources are put at the appropriate uh, uh, governance level, with the idea being that you get pub better public policy outcomes. So I, you can make people's lives better through the interventions of public policy to address the concerns that they um, have through decentralised systems. And I think that that's where the the argument always has to keep um, getting dragged back to, you know, why are we doing this? What's it for? Um, and a centralised system is not really solving a lot of these big structural problems that the UK uh, is facing. So how do we push this big, creaking, mature, old kind of state form towards a more decentralised structure? And it, yeah, we wouldn't, we don't really want to start where we are, but that's what we're kind of stuck with. And trying to do that in intelligent and appropriate ways is obviously the one of the key things that this uh, piece of work around the constitution has been has been focused upon. Fantastic, thank you. Um, Nicola, I wanted to put the question about the Sewell Convention uh, to you and whether that should be put on a, a stronger basis. And I suppose a question about the role of the courts in devolution more generally. Should they have more of a role policing the boundaries between uh, the different parts of the UK? Obviously, um, we've seen that increasingly uh, legislation has been challenged by the UK, Scottish legislation has been challenged by the UK government. Perhaps would people be comfortable with the courts having a greater role if it was more balanced? I think, I mean, it depends in a sense in that the, the, the courts have had an important role in policing the boundaries of, of devolution. And what we've seen is that the, the way in which that takes place is shaped by the makeup of the Supreme Court. So as it evolves, then some of the thinking evolves too. Um, I think that the, the, the problem, I suppose, with, um, yes, of course you can do all of these things. You, you can have a principle of subsidiarity, you can have those legal guarantees, um, but what you're essentially saying then is that you no longer have the sovereignty of the UK Parliament. Now, that can be done. I don't, I don't buy the idea that you can't do that, you can't touch that. Of course you can. If there was a political will to do that, you can do it. If there was a political will to have a federal state, you can do it. It's not easy, but it's also not beyond the wit of you know, constitutional lawyers to devise a system that is, that is workable. Um, but there isn't the political will, mm -hmm. and that's fundamentally the problem. You mentioned deposit return schemes, so that's not a sole convention issue. So there's no... Co so with the deposit return scheme, um, an, an idea developed, uh, being practiced everywhere, um, European um, Union leading the way in a sense, um, the Scottish Parliament passing um, a piece of legislation that is not feasible um, without an exemption from the United Kingdom Internal Market Act, and that exemption was not forthcoming. Um, so on the one hand, you can say, well, maybe you don't really want to have four different regulatory systems in the UK over something like that. Um, the problem, is, well, there's, there are two things I would say to that. One is that it stifles innovation um, because one of, the, one of the advantages of deficit, in addition to all of the things that Andy was saying, one of the advantages is that you can pilot stuff. You can try stuff out in one territory, and we've seen umpteen examples of that uh, since devolution where things have been tried out and then adapted or spread out across the rest of the UK. The other is at the moment because of the nature of intergovernmental relations, because of the dominance and the approach of the UK government, uh, what we see is um, if, if we are going to have something on a four nation basis, it has to be on the UK government's terms. Mm. 
And that's not something that sits very easily uh, with many of the principles of devolution. Yeah, fantastic. And picking up um, Nicola's point and also Belinda's question about this sort of balance between um, kind of devolved autonomy and complexity, particularly for business, um, Joe, how do you think that the UK has been doing that so far? <laughs> Have they got it right? Are there any things uh, that could you know, allow that kind of certainty and consistency that, uh, that Belinda is arguing businesses need while still respecting devolution? You're on mute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so has it, has it gone right so far? So, you know, we have to some extent brought over models and principles from the EU internal market, free movement, non-discrimination, the idea that if a product is lawfully made and conforms with local standards uh, in one part of the EU, it has access anywhere else in that market. And to some extent, those principles have been rolled over in the UK Internal Market Act for the UK. But that's been done in a very absolute way. Uh, and a way that is very centralising, given the strength of UK Parliament, given the size of England compared to the rest of the uh, the parts of the of the UK, and so it means that that space for regulatory divergence um, is at risk of getting pushed out. Uh, but we might want local solutions for for good reason. Um, and if we just look at the example of the deposit return scheme, allowing Scotland to move forward with that, the, the initiatives that it's got there um, for, for those environmental protection purposes and uh, the circular economy, you know, every good EU law student will know the deposit, you know, the Danish bottles case, which was Denmark having a deposit return scheme effectively, and it being potentially non-compliant with internal market, but it could be exempted on public policy grounds. And what we don't have um, is that space for that to work effectively at the moment. The way that the UK Internal Market Act has been drafted is in a way that is very centralising and leaves very little space for any public policy reasons to be brought into consideration to try and defend local choices. Um, so, I mean, you know, immediately returning to that legislation and, and you know, recasting it in a way that reflects more what was there before um, and give space for, for the arguments to come through about why, you know, what there may be an economic consideration, but other concerns should be able to be determined and taken into consideration when we're choosing how the different parts of the UK operate. Mm. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Thing? So I completely agree with, with Joe on all of that, but that she said something about allowing the Scottish government to, to do that. And that's the, the place we've moved into with um, post-Brexit legislation, it's allowing the devolved institutions to act in areas that are devolved, where they fall under the, the umbrella of the UK Internal Market Act. And one of the things that's, one of the consequences of that within government is it's having a chilling effect. It's having the effect of slowing the pace of policy development of officials being nervous about whether things that are being proposed are going to be um, prevented or blocked in some way or, or have to confront the barriers of the UK Internal Market Act and, and other pieces of legislation as well. So that is a fundamental shift of the way we do devolution in the UK. Fantastic, thank you. Um, and David, there was a question there specifically on Northern Ireland power sharing and whether the current structures um, kind of uh, reinforce division um, be interested in your view on that. Yeah, well, come back to my opening remarks. Uh, you know, Good Friday Agreement has given us 25 years of relative peace, but it hasn't given us good governments. And, and I think having a sort of form of enforced coalition has created unnecessary tensions. You know, when you've got parties with very different uh, ideologies having to work together, quite often you see uh, policy agreement um, based on sort of lowest common denominator. That's one of the issues we're just going to have to address. But I think it is worth noting that, you know, we have 11 councils which actually have continued to operate relatively successfully throughout this period. 
Um, now, uh, despite the fact that quite a lot of those councils would be dominated by one tradition or the other. So, you know, if, if devolution you know, continues to be difficult in Northern Ireland, I think giving more power to local authorities is probably something that will have to be considered. Just a quick point on the uh, regulatory divergence point. Obviously, with Northern Ireland effectively remaining in the single market for goods, um, we are going to see, I suspect, some form of regulatory divergence between Northern Ireland and Great Britain over the number of years. And it'll be just interesting to see if that leads to a sort of economic shift. You know, if, 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 if companies decide that actually Northern Ireland is a good place to invest, you know, what will be the reaction of the uh, government in Westminster if there's a, a sort of economic shift in the balance towards Northern Ireland? which I suppose some of us would think would be a good thing, but it may create tensions elsewhere. Fantastic, thank you. Um, I'm going to take a couple more questions for the floor in the last kind of uh, few minutes. If you could keep uh, your questions brief and answers brief, that would be fantastic. Uh, great, I think uh, it was this gentleman and this gentleman who are here first. Thank you. Um, my name's Henry Oliver. I work at Opinion, the market research firm in, in the pollsters. Um, back um, in 2001, 97, we, we actually saw the environment low on kind of election priorities, both for the public, but also relatively for, for the kind of political parties. But that changed, obviously, over the years. Is there one kind of thing that you could, you know, the USP for increasing kind of um, the political importance of devolution that, that you would really highlight and hopefully move that public kind of uh, perception of it as, as, a, as a very important thing? Thank you. Uh, um, I really have a comment more than anything else. I'm doing some work on, on all of this with a team at Ditchley. Um, I'd like to inject some optimism into this discussion. It's all been fairly, if I may say so, rather negative what we've been hearing. Now, um, Andy's frustration uh, is very largely due to the fact that what this requires is a change of self-perception <clears throat> by people who work not far from here, be they in Whitehall or Westminster. In other words, it requires people here to develop a different understanding of their jobs. Now, to do that is very, very difficult. <clears throat> and I think that, but I think that um, it could be, the, the, the three nations have a platform Nobody in England has a large enough platform. The two Andes, okay, they're getting there, but not quite yet. But the three nations have a platform. Um, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. If they were to uh, be pushing uh, on some of this stuff with a single voice, not with three voices, but with a single voice, I think you would find that the result of that could be that there is then a renewed impetus within England because you can't really conceive of any solution which doesn't involve Great. units within Fantastic. England. Fantastic. Sorry, we've got one minute to go. So uh, but thank you. That's really, really helpful. Um, I guess quick fire round then, uh, which I think those questions go nicely together. How do you make people care about devolution? And uh, should the devolved governments be working together in order to achieve that? Uh, Nicola, I'll start with you. So... I'm afraid to say I think you make people um, outside of the devolved territories care about devolution when the union is under threat. Mm -hmm. And if that threat is seen to subside, then people care less. Um, they do work together. And we saw one of the features of the Brexit context was the extent to which a Labour government in Wales, an SNP government in Scotland, with very different constitutional outlooks, worked really closely together um, didn't make much difference in terms of, it made, it made a little bit of difference early on, but beyond that it didn't really give them any additional leverage in securing the kinds of things they wanted to see from that process. Andy. Yeah, thanks. I mean, two things to say. I mean, one, um, the idea that, yeah, if people have a perception that the state is failing, it's broken, then it's because it's too centralised and, you know, you have to start to make accessible rationales for people to understand that devolution is part of the solution, not part of the problem. That's the first thing. On the second one, 
we actually had around the time of um, the, the, the 2019 general election, um, a government and a leader that was talking about levelling up being a defining mission of the government and a task for the whole of government for the UK. The white paper is levelling up for the UK. Yeah, it's a national uh, kind of renewal uh, project. Now, uh, a lot of water obviously has flown under the bridge since then. But if that was serious and meaningful, then as a defining singular mission then for um, uh, for the UK government to work with its constituent partners, then that might be more meaningful and might have made more of a difference. Although, as we know, things have not quite turned out that way. Fantastic. Quick, David, and then Joe, I'll give you the final word. David. Uh, the answer is yes. The three of us should work together. It can be tricky for us in Northern Ireland whenever you have a unionist and a nationalist uh, in the first minister roles, um, which makes some of the bigger issues you know, just a little tricky, as I say, at times. But generally, yes, we should be working closely together. Fantastic. And Joe. Yeah, and I think just to say, it shouldn't only be coming on the agenda where crisis moments are, are there. You know, this is something that deserves that attention outside the crisis points. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Thank you for all the questions on Slido and in the room that we didn't manage to get to. Um, but please do check out the work of the IFG Bennett Institute Review of the UK Constitution. You can find all the details on our website, including a write-up of all the roundtables that we've held um, across the UK. So summarising that discussion. We'll also be publishing our final paper with our recommendations of how we think you could improve the UK Constitution, including for devolution in September with a special one-day conference, so please do keep an eye out for that. Um, this event will be available to watch on YouTube in the next few days, and if you enjoyed it or just want to take advantage of the aircon this week, uh, you can sign up for our next event, What Makes a Successful Special Advisor, tomorrow at 1.30. Um, thank you all for joining, and all that remains for me to do is to thank our panel. Thank you, Joe, David, Nicola and Andy, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Thank you.